So it was about 12.30 a.m. early, early in the morning on September 13th, 1999. I had been asleep just a couple hours when Lisa woke me up. And you know how you're already in REM sleep and so you're in deep sleep and so I was disoriented and confused and wondering what was wrong and she says, it's time to go. We've gotta go. And I shot out of bed and I was like, where do we have to go? And she said, we need to go to the hospital. The contractions, it's ready, I'm ready. And so I shook the sleep off, I loaded up the car and we drove as fast as we could to Kaiser South, which was the closest labor and delivery that Kaiser had at the time. And so we got there um, somewhere around maybe 1, 1.30 in the morning and they checked Lisa and they said, you're definitely ready. Do you want an epidural? Now Lisa had been induced with Caleb because she had gallstones all through her pregnancy. So they had to induce three weeks early so they could operate on her. So it was a planned one. It was already a lot of pain medication. She really didn't have the context to give an answer. So as she was considering her options, a nurse says to her, honey, if you keep going like this, you're gonna have this baby in just a few minutes. And Lisa said, oh, I, if this, yeah, I can do this. If this is as bad as it gets, I'll do this. Some of the ladies are already ahead of the story just a little bit. So as the evening progressed and the contractions exponentially intensified, Lisa said, I'd like the epidural now. And the nurse said, oh honey, that window closed a long time ago. So for almost four hours, Lisa pushed without any pain medication at all. But there was one moment that stood out in that already very memorable evening. <laughs> Lisa was a couple hours into pushing and she was really beginning to feel it. She was exhausted and in a lot of pain and starting to feel angrier and angrier about the lack of progress. The nurses were just sort of standing there talking to each other, seemingly, seemingly, I'm not saying they weren't, just seemingly not really doing anything. And I could see something happening on Lisa's face as I stood next to her holding her hand and I could feel her grip getting stronger and stronger and my knuckles getting whiter and whiter and the pain intensifying on my own hand, knowing though not to say anything at all, let her break as many bones as necessary. And it seemed as if maybe the pressure and the anger were going to just blow out of the top of her head like a volcano lava of wrath going everywhere. And then she said it, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> and the nurse said, I'm, what, what? She goes, I said, what are we doing here? 
And the nurse said, well, sweetie, we're trying to have a baby, but if you don't start giving better pushes, we're gonna be here a lot longer. And that's when it happened. The lights started to flicker. The hands on the clock started turning backwards. Lightning and thunder rattled the room. Lisa's eyes turned the color of hell's fire. And I stepped back, <laughs> got in the fetal position and just waited for it. I was convinced that she was gonna push the baby out with the force of a cannon just so she could stand up and punch the nurse. <laughs> you think Lisa's all sweet, you wait till she's having a baby. <laughs> Nothing sweet about her at all. Thankfully she didn't do that, but I will say that her anger worked to her advantage and Shortly, and I mean within the next maybe 90 minutes, she gave birth to our middle son, Cole, at about five in the morning. But I remember learning two very important things that night. That there's a lot of people who can observe and they can talk a big talk and they can talk a big game and they can give you advice and tell you how you're supposed to do things and tell you what it's gonna be like and tell you about the choices that you're gonna make, just like that nurse did. Condescending, belittling, questioning her, giving her bad advice in the beginning. Life is full of people who do a lot of talking. And unfortunately, life's full of us listening to people doing a lot of talking. And the second thing I learned is this, that new life happens because of the pushers, because of the ones doing the doing, the ones actually there in the bed, going through the pain, the discomfort, the ones having to convert all of the noise around them and all of the options around them and all the things and just make it happen. You see, no one else brought that baby into the world except Lisa and no one else will bring new life. The life that you want, the life that you deserve, the life that you were created for, no one will bring that to you but you. There's gonna be a lot of people who will talk. There's gonna be a lot of people who tell you the choices that you should make. A lot of people who are gonna want you to do things a particular way because they might have succeeded that way or they think you'll succeed that way. But I want you to hear this, that only you are going to get to the life that you want by doing something. Listen to what James says in James 1, 22. Do what God's teaching says, don't just listen and do nothing. When you only sit and listen, you're fooling yourselves. What he's saying is, these moments, they're important because we might glean some wisdom. We might hear what we need to hear. These are important moments for us. But these aren't what bring change in your life. You just hearing this is not what helps. You converting what you hear into something you do is what changes your life, is what makes you what God promised you and created you to be. 
So with all the talking that goes on in our life, the things we listen to, the way that we allow other people to shape our life, ask yourself this, are you where you want to be because of all of that going on around you? Of all the good advice people have for you that really don't know your life and more importantly, don't know the promises that God has buried with seeds in your heart, This is a moment in which we can fertilize and stimulate and grow those seeds in your life, but you and you alone are the only one that's going to allow that to come to fruition. Grab your notes if you don't already have them out. We're going to talk about birthing a new life. To birth a new kind of life, I have to start, number one, fill this into your notes or open up your app and type that in, doing things that scare me. So according to a Pew Research and Gallup polls, Americans' trust in the federal government is at a historic all-time low. Americans are continuing to lose trust year after year in the office of the president, in both houses of Congress, and even now in the Supreme Court. So the question is, where do we place our trust? Well, this isn't going to come as much as a surprise to you. We place our trust in money. According to a bank rate survey, Americans feel they need to earn approximately $233,000 a year on average to be secure or comfortable with their finances. $233,000 a year just to feel secure and comfortable. But to be rich and to have complete financial freedom, Americans say they need about two times more than that, roughly $483,000. If we could just make that, we would be completely free financially. Both of those numbers are significantly higher than the American salary average of $55,000. In other words, Americans believe that in order to just feel relief financially, they need to make five times what they're currently making. And to feel complete financial freedom, to feel like you don't have anything to worry about, they need to make about 10 times as much as they're making. And so as a result, what ends up happening is people believe they need to get better jobs, other jobs, promotions, take on an additional job, do something, do anything to make more money because we believe that freedom comes from having more. But I want you to listen to this in uh, 1 Timothy 6 where Paul is writing to Timothy and he's telling him, this is what you need to tell the people that you're pastoring right now. Tell those rich in this world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves, obsessed with their own goals and obsessed with money, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Tell them to go instead after God, who piles on all the riches we could ever manage, to do good, to be rich in helping others, to be extravagantly generous. If they do that, they'll build a treasury that will last gaining life that is truly life. Here he is telling Timothy to tell those like us who have, and you say, well, 
Hold up, <laughs> BC. I don't know if you know about our finances. Uh, we are not wealthy. Well, you might not realize this, but if you make household income $10,000 a year, you are wealthier than 84% of the planet. I have no doubt everyone in here makes at least $10,000 a year. You could be on government assistance and make more than $10,000 a year. So the poorest of our country are richer than 84% of the planet. If you make $50,000, you are wealthier than 99% of the planet. And I would imagine many in here meet that qualification, which means you are the wicked 1% that's so villainized on news shows and talk shows, you are the 1%. So we love to point fingers at the obscenely rich. Remember when millionaires were the villain? There's so many millionaires now, they can't be the villain because too many people, are, yeah, I don't wanna be a villain, so billionaires are the villain. There's a millionaire he was a political advisor. I don't even know what he does now except make annoying TikToks. But the guy's name is Robert Reich and he tweets all day long about the wealthiest in the world. And the, the man's a multimillionaire lecturing people, the rest of us, on the wickedness of the billionaires on the planet. That's how rich we are that the millionaires are criticizing the billionaires for how they spend their money. And every one of them, and many times us, will point our fingers to them and say, why with all that you have, aren't you doing more for people? Doing more good for people, making the world a better place, relieving the suffering of people. Can I tell you this, that 99% of the planet would ask you the same very question? You and I, are the wealthiest in the world. You and I all have the capacity to do good and change lives and relieve the suffering of people. But we think that giving up our wealth leaves us vulnerable. I get it, it's scary because we think that what we have can't be replaced. Can I tell you what Solomon said, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes long into his years, well into the wisdom that he had gained along the way. He said this, do good wherever you go. After a while, the good you do will come back to you. Listen to the way he converts this into an analogy. Invest what you have in several different things. Other translations say, sow seeds. The, the old translations say, cast your bread upon the water, send it out, invest what you have in several different things. You don't know what bad things might happen on earth. You have no way of knowing that. There are some things you can be sure of though. If clouds are full of rain, they're going to pour water on the earth. Rain clouds bring rain. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, that's where it's going to stay. If a tree falls just know that that tree, you have to move around it, over it, that's where the tree is gonna stay. But there are some things that you cannot be sure of. 
You have to take chances. If you wait for the perfect weather, you'll never plant your seeds. If you're afraid that every cloud will bring rain, you'll never harvest your crops. You don't know where the wind blows and you don't know how a baby grows in its mother's womb. In the same way, you don't know what God will do and he makes everything happen. So begin planting early in the morning and don't stop working until the evening. You don't know what might make you rich. Maybe everything you do will be successful. Here's what Solomon says. There's no way of knowing the future. There's no way of knowing what catastrophic thing might happen next or what good thing might happen next. So do this, plant good, plant good, plant it all over the place, plant it everywhere you go because that's all gonna start bringing fruit. You don't know what's gonna bring fruit or how much fruit it's gonna bring. You don't know who, what in, uh, relationship you invest in or what generosity that you extend is going to produce something. So just do it all over the place and do it generously because it may all return something to you. How will you ever know what blessings are meant to come back to you until you start sending blessings out to be invested and grow and fertilize and then return fruit? into your life. Number two is this, to birth a new kind of life, I have to just start doing things that stretch me. So I don't know, I don't know if the gym's always a good idea. Here's why, tomorrow morning, Lisa and I will get up and we will go to, she goes off to a 9 a.m. class and I go to a different, 9 a.m. class. And then we meet up at 10.15 for yoga. And I gotta tell you, there's a lot of things we do to our bodies in that class that I don't think you're supposed to do. <laughs> I think there's a reason pain is in your body to go, you're bending it the wrong way, it's not meant to go that way. But everybody keeps telling me, it hurts because you're not stretching and you gotta stretch, that's why this is good. I've yet to see the goodness, there's a lot of pain and I'm still in pain and I walk around in pain and I go, yoga's killing me. And she goes, but you're, you're not doing it enough. And I'm like, I wanna hurt myself more and I don't get the logic. If I asked any one of you, Single or married, do you want to be in a healthy, strong, failure-proof marriage? Or if I asked those who have a business or want to start a business, do you want to have a successful, thriving, sustainable, lasting business that will keep growing and growing and growing until it reaches its absolute maximum potential. Or I asked any one of you if, you, if you wanted your faith, your walk with Christ to be solid, doubt-proof, unshakable, growing, passionate, something that put a fire inside of you, I have no doubt that I would get enthusiastic and honest yeses from every single one of you. But then if I ask the question, what exactly have you already begun to do to prepare for those successes? What have you already put in place anticipating the healthier, stronger, thriving, fail-proof marriage? 
What have you done to invest in the business that hasn't yet come or maybe hasn't even yet started? What risk have you taken? What things have you done that are measurable that you can say, I'm ready for this success and I've done all this to show that. What have you already done to prepare for the spiritual growth and health and discipline in your life? I have a feeling the answers to that would be a lot more sparse. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 54, one through three. The Lord says, sing Jerusalem. He's speaking to the Israelites through the prophet Isaiah. You are like a woman who never gave birth to children. Remember, this was the mark of health, prosperity, blessing for you to have kids, to propagate your future generations. That was your wealth. You didn't need to have many kids if you had no land to manage or no uh, flocks to, to shepherd. The more kids you have, it meant the more wealth you had for them to manage. Sing Jerusalem, you're like a woman who never gave birth to, a, to children. Start singing and shout for joy. You never felt the pain of giving birth, but you will have more children than the woman who has a husband. Make your tent bigger, stretch it out and make it wider. Do not hold back, make the ropes longer and its stakes stronger because you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your children will take over other nations and they will again live in cities that were once destroyed. I love this right here because this is God telling Israel, don't wait until the blessings I promised have come. Show that you believe they're coming. Start expanding the tents now, stretching the tent poles out, expanding the place where you live so that you can prepare for greater growth. Set more places at the table so that you can get ready to eat the bounty that I'll bring through blessing. Begin to consume more land because you will occupy more land, not just now, but in the future and in generations to come. God was saying, celebrate now for the blessings I'll bring to your children and grandchildren. Do it now. That's how we respond to the promises of God. That's how we stretch. God said, start stretching the tents before you need them. I love this analogy. I'm preaching better than you're responding. I'll say that. Mark 3, 1. It's too late. Too late. Mark 3, 1 through 6. I love this story. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue. Now, it's noteworthy that he went into the synagogue because that is where religious leaders were going to be. And it's also where the poor and afflicted came because they were hoping that God or God's people would do something benevolent for them. And a man with a weak and twisted hand was there. And some Pharisees, religious leaders, experts in the law, were trying to find fault with Jesus. They watched him closely. And they wanted to see if he would heal a man on the Sabbath day. For those who don't know, on the Sabbath, you were not permitted to do any work. And in their minds, healing would be work on the Sabbath. Jesus spoke to the man with the weak and twisted hand and he said, stand up in front of everyone. Now I love this because Jesus wanted everyone to witness this. He wanted them to witness him violating the Sabbath. He didn't try to hide it from the Pharisees who were conspiring against him. Jesus wanted everyone to see 
the lesson of what he was about to do. Then Jesus asked them, what does the law say we should do on the Sabbath? Should we do good or should we do evil? Should we save a life or should we kill? Of course, they couldn't answer, so nobody answered. And then Jesus looked around at them in anger. And he was very upset because their hearts were stubborn. They didn't even realize that he was setting them up, that there was a right answer to the question. You should always do good. No matter what, God will never punish you for doing good. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand became as good as new. The Pharisees went out and began to make plans with the Herodians they wanted to kill Jesus. I love this because Jesus commanded that he stretch it out. What was vulnerable and what was likely painful, I would imagine this man kept this close to him, one, because it was painful to stretch. The tenants and the muscles and the skin, everything, the bones, nothing was meant to be stretched in that hand and he kept it close to him because he was embarrassed because in that culture it meant that he had sinned or his parents had sinned and this was punishment. So spiritually, emotionally, culturally, Physically, in every way, this man felt shame and pain. And Jesus asked him to put it all out on the line and stretch it out. And it says, when he stretched it, then his hand became as good as new. But he had to stretch it out. The man could have certainly said, no, sir, I won't. I've done it before and I've been burnt before. I've done it before and they've mocked me. I've done it before and I've been judged. I won't do it. But instead he stretched out his hand and he was made new. And then third and finally is this, to birth a new kind of life, I have to just start doing things that stabilize me. So Lisa and I belonged to this gym for a while and long enough to see that there are familiar, it's a big gym, but you see familiar faces. There's actually quite a few people from the church that belong there as well. And so we all hold each other accountable for our exercise. No, we don't actually. We try and avoid each other at all costs. Um, we do the <laughs> Audi, <laughs> mostly because you look gross at the gym, right? You'd, I don't put on makeup before I go to the gym, so I know that. Um, so you're there long enough to notice the familiar faces and you sort of know how busy the class is going to be and what time of the day and what days of the week are best to go. And then January comes. And then every class is absolutely packed. Every bike and cycling is taken. Every treadmill is whirling away. The parking lot is full and I have to park in the back 40 but it's just a temporary annoyance and inconvenience because by mid-February, there'll be plenty of bikes and treadmills will be silent and I'll park right at the front. I only have to walk a few feet to the door. Because great goals don't always convert into good habits. A lot of people who want to do a good thing don't allow that good thing to become part of their life. As a middle schooler in high school, I grew up in a um, youth group, youth ministry in St. Louis. It was a large church and I was absolutely in love with doing uh, lots of stuff going on in the youth ministry, youth retreats, youth services. The youth helped volunteer and set up things at the church and we were always, always, always doing something and I was there all the time. And 
when we would have one of those really amazing youth services or we'd come back from camp or there'd be a retreat and we'd all be hyped up, my youth pastor would say something that's always stuck with me. He'd say, it doesn't matter how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you land. And that was his way of saying, this thing is good, but if it doesn't convert into becoming a lifestyle, then it's worthless. If it doesn't change the way you treat people and how you see God and how you see yourself, if it doesn't change the way you love the unlovable or how much good you did before versus how much good you did after this, if it doesn't actually change you, then it's worthless. As good as it felt, as much as you want to celebrate that camp-like feeling, that really intense, that great Bible study, that great small group you went to, that great podcast you listened to, if it doesn't convert into changing your life, then it's useless. So the one time big act of generosity, the one time that you decide to do something good and benevolent to somebody who doesn't deserve it, those are good things. I'm not telling you not to do them. I'm telling you that it has to be the beginning of the next thing you do and the thing you do after that and the thing you do after that and not everything has to be the same thing. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. It can be absurdly generous here and what you can do here. It can be, I, I'm, I won't go into it because I don't always want the left hand to know what the right hand's doing, but somebody came and bought something off of Facebook Marketplace from me and I read a little of their profile on Facebook and saw that they had been in pain because of their life and felt rejection because of who they were and had just sort of expressed that they wanted to support this thing because that thing helped promote the values that they felt when they felt marginalized and hurt and wounded. And when they got there, they, I had asked them to pay half so that, because they needed me to hold it for a week. And so I did. And then when they came and picked it up, I helped them load it up into the truck and I strapped it down for them. And uh, she said, I, I still owe you the other half. And I said, that's okay, give it to your fundraiser. And she said, Oh, no, but I only paid, I said, I know, but I, I want you to give it to your birthday fundraiser. Now, it wasn't a big deal, and it wasn't really, it was less than about $40. It wasn't that big of a deal. But I believe that that's part of the kind of seeds that you sow, and you sow as many as you can, as long as you can, as often as you can, because it converts into a lifestyle. You just keep working that muscle. The reality is I'm in pain all the time because I only do yoga on Mondays. So I do it enough to cause pain, but not enough to eliminate the pain. I know that, but I'd rather complain than go to yoga more than once a week. <laughs> Namaste, okay, is what I'm saying? First John says it perfectly. My little children, and I kind of love this because it feels a little bit loving and condescending at the same time. My little dumb children, don't just talk about love as an idea or a theory. Make it your true way of life. 
We talk about love around church like it's the thing that we do all the time. And I told you a series or two back that loving people doesn't even make it into Christians' top two things that they think they're good at. And it doesn't make the top 10 of those who aren't Christians when they're talking about Christians. Make it your true way of life and live in the pattern of gracious, grace-filled love. There's a sure way for us to know that we belong to the truth, that's it. Even through our inner thoughts, they may condemn us. Listen, for you guys who struggle, wondering if you're doing the whole Christianity thing right, beating yourself up, not believing that you're doing it, even though our inner thoughts may condemn us with storms of guilt and constant reminders of our failures, we can know in our hearts that in his presence, God himself is greater than any accusation. He knows all things. You know what God knows about you? Yeah. Amen, yeah. Amen. You know what God knows about you? Is what you're doing. Not what you're talking about, not what theoretically you believe in, not what you say are the cores of your faith and your belief system. God wants to see you loving people like he loves people. Jesus loved the worst of us. And if you can love the worst of people, then it's easy to love the best of people. So we love who Jesus loves. And we help how Jesus helped. He wanted people to see that he wasn't afraid to do things that contradicted religious norms. Jesus got up there and he said, this is a good thing and God would never be angry about doing a good thing. People invite Lisa and I to places that early in our ministry would have said, oh my dear God, what if somebody saw us there? Now I'm like, the, I'm like heck yeah, I'll go to that. Because that's where people are. That's where people live there. That's where people, you don't have to engage in everything. You don't have to go head deep. Paul said, I became all things to all men so that I might win some. And he said, I lived as the Greeks and I lived as the Jews. He embraced their culture. He embraced the environment. He got in there and he said, I became one of them so that I could identify, so that I could know their hearts, so that they could know me, and so that I might be able to tell them about the goodness of God. I want it to be a lifestyle so consistent in my life that I bring Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the love of Jesus, and the help of Jesus, the lifestyle, the words, the thoughts of Jesus everywhere I go. So I am immune to the accusations and the condemnations and the, the things people wanna say. Do you, I mean, I have to just, I have to applaud Paul who he says, I don't really even care what you think about me. I don't care what any human authority thinks. I don't even care what I think about me because I'm probably wrong. I know you're wrong, but I'm probably wrong too. Only God knows my heart. I love that right there because God is not the accuser. We are, the enemy is, but God is not. And so get good at doing good. I'll end with this final passage, 2 Peter 1, three through nine. 
His divine power has given us just do it January. And also everything we need to experience life. Listen, he's already given you everything you need to experience life and to reflect God's true nature through the knowledge of the one who has called us by his glory and virtue. Through these things, we have received God's great and valuable promises so we might escape the corruption of the worldly desires and share in the divine nature. So hold it right there for a second. So far it says this, God has already put his nature inside of you so that by knowing him, the more you know him, the more you reflect him, and the more you act like him, talk like him, think like him, you become more and more immune to the corruption of the world. Again, I'm telling you, stop your efforts to, we work so hard on quitting sin that we don't have any time left to do the good that God's created us for. So just stop trying to not sin and start doing the good and then you become immune to the things you go, why, I don't, why, I don't wanna do that. That's boring, it's distracting and you just wanna get back to doing good where there's reward and not guilt. Is this what I'm supposed to read next? There you go. To achieve this, you'll need to add, I like this, we have the faith, but you need to add virtue. Virtue to your faith, and then knowledge to your virtue. And to knowledge, you add discipline, and discipline, you add endurance. And then to endurance, you add godliness, and let me stop there. Godliness simply means to be set apart for God's purposes. It doesn't mean, that's what holiness and godliness means. It means God-likeness, set apart to behave like God, to reflect God. Don't let that intimidate you or scare you or set you off or trigger you. That just means God's got a purpose for you and you are committing to living that purpose. To godliness, add affection for others as sisters and brothers and to affection at last, add love. What I love about this is that it builds one good thing on the next good thing. It's a process, it's a lifestyle, and if you do this, you will add stability. Isn't that what we want, to be doing something 10 months, 11 months, at the end of 2024, we go, I started something in January, and I'm still doing it in December. Not only am I doing that thing, my faith is growing, but I added virtue to that. There was good motives and good intent and, and good behavior and good thoughts. And then I added more to that and I added more to that. And, I, and God was not expecting all that at once. He was giving me the process and the time and the platform in which I could just keep adding the good things that he wants from me. And we get to the end of a year and we say, not only am I stable in these good things, I'm healthy and I'm strong and I've built not only a foundation around me, but it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, the good things that God is trusting me with. Pastor Dan and I were joking with each other, laughing. We were having our weekly lunch and um, our breakfast. We usually spread a, split a breakfast. Isn't it cute? Lisa, is that so adorable? You guys, we split a breakfast sandwich, but... He chickened out this week. He said he had a lunch and didn't want to eat the sandwich. So I ate my half and took the rest home. But um, we started laughing that, that 
in church, it feels like there are maybe a small percentage of those who are the really faithful carriers of vision and giving and serving and helping and stepping up. And, and the temptation is to keep going back to those really good, sharp, loving, committed, faithful people because they're always there when you need them. And it's like the story Jesus told where the one servant who had the one talent, the thousand dollars, he did nothing with it. And Jesus took it away from him and said, now I'm gonna have the one, I'm gonna give that to the one who managed 5,000 and did it well. This is where we separate ourselves and we decide who we wanna be. Whether we wanna be those who drain and fail to, 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 to nurture and invest and multiply the gifts and the abilities that God gave us. And God just says, I can't trust you. You're squandering it. And he just moves it over and gives the blessing, the responsibility, but the blessing to somebody else. This is where you decide that. It's not that life's unfair. It's not that God blesses some and, and curses others. It's that we choose to be recipients or rejectors of the blessing. Do you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Because I just want you to have a moment to not only reflect on this, but respond to it. First, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you're not a follower of Christ yet. Can I tell you that he's so desperately in love with you? And you think, not if he knew what he knows. I'm telling you, he knows. He knows stuff about you you don't know about yourself. You're not willing to admit about yourself. He's seen it all. He's seen every thought, every word, and it doesn't make him love you any less. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that's what drew him to us. He wants to be in our life, to move us out of what we do, to distract ourselves, to dissuade ourselves, to complicate and frustrate and condemn ourselves. He wants to be a part of growing us into what he created us to be. And if you want a relationship with him, you don't have to come down here and shake my hand or go to some class that we offer after service. You just right where you're at. I'm telling you, Jesus is already there just waiting for the thumbs up from you. He's ready. Question is, are you? And if you are, I would ask that no one else is looking around. I am, I'll tell you that I am. But if that's you and you just want to begin a relationship, there's no other shoe that's going to drop. I'm not going to ask you to do another thing. Just poke your hand up and go, man, that's me. Thanks. Thank you. And I'm going to tell you this truth. You don't have to do that. There's nothing magical about that. But there's something courageous too when we can put a movement into something that's happening in our hearts, just like those that were baptized. I'm gonna pray this and I, I want you just in your hearts, you can silently pray this. Christ Jesus, I do believe in you enough that I can pray this prayer at least. 
I don't know everything about you and I, I don't know what all this might look like, but I do feel like I need to take this step. And so I'm stepping out in faith. I want to be the best of myself. I want to be who you created me to be. And I know I can't get there without knowing you and following you. You know the plan. You have the map. You want what's best for me even when I don't. And so I want to begin a relationship today. I know that I've done a lot of selfish things, but I also know you have the power to simply breathe your breath of righteousness over all of those things and make them disappear. So I'm praying that you would do that. Give me a brand new start today in you. And for everybody else, I want to ask this question. If you know that today's the day you're supposed to do things that scare you and stretch you and stabilize you, to put the the sealant on at the end of, I don't want to just do big things and then those fade away and feel like a failure again. I want to do big things that scare me and stretch me, but become a part of my life. And you know that God used this message to challenge you to take that next step. You can throw your hand up too. Yeah, lots and lots. Well, here's our prayer, Lord. We want to do things that we're incapable of doing by ourselves, that we're scared to do by ourselves, that we don't want to do by ourselves. Things that stretch us, that make us feel vulnerable, that open us to judgment, condemnation, criticism, maybe even self-doubt, a battle with what we believe about ourselves and how many times we failed in the past. But we want it to all become part of something that we're doing 30 days from now, 90 days from now, three years from now. We're tired, God, of doing these big gestures and then just fizzling out. Help us to become who we're supposed to become because it's bigger than what we can do on our own. So we need you. And the more we need you, the more time we need to spend with you. So help us realize how important that is. We pray for it all, preparing now for the growth, stretching our tents, extending our tent poles, extending the length of our ropes, getting ready now for better marriages, more generous in our finances, greater spiritual health than ever before, and every goal that we've ever set that we believe is part of who you've made us to be and the blessings you've created us to receive. Help us believe now to prepare now for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.